Well, would you uh, just stand with me in honor of the Word of God? I'm preaching from Daniel chapter 3, reading from verse 14 to 30. And uh, I believe it's uh, in your bulletin, and it is also on the uh, screen behind me. Daniel chapter 3, reading from verse 14 uh, through to the end of the chapter. And Nebuchadnezzar said to them, Is it true, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that you do not serve my gods or worship the image of gold I have set up? Now when you hear the sound of the horn, the flute, the zither, lyre, harp, pipes, and all kinds of music, if you are ready to fall down and worship the image I made, very good. But if you do not worship it, you will be thrown immediately into a blazing furnace. Then... What God will be able to rescue you from my hand? Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego replied to the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, we do not need to defend ourselves before you in this matter. If we are thrown into the blazing furnace, the God we serve is able to save us from it, and he will rescue us from your hand, O king. But even if he does not, we want you to know, O king, that we will not serve your gods or worship the image of gold you have set up. Then Nebuchadnezzar was furious with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and his attitude toward them changed. He ordered the furnace heated seven times hotter than usual and commanded some of the strongest soldiers in his army to tie up Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and throw them into the blazing furnace. So these men... Wearing their robes, trousers, turbans, and other clothes were bound and thrown into the blazing furnace. The king's command was so urgent and the furnace so hot that the flames of the fire killed the soldiers who took up Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And these three men, firmly tied, fell into the blazing furnace. Then King Nebuchadnezzar leaped to his feet in amazement and asked his advisors, Weren't there three men that we tied up and threw into the fire? They replied, Certainly, O king. He said, Look, I see four men walking around in the fire, unbound and unharmed, and the fourth looks like a son of the gods. And Nebuchadnezzar then approached the opening of the blazing furnace and shouted, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, servants of the Most High God, come out, come here. So Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego came out of the fire, and the satraps, prefects, governors, and royal advisors crowded around them. They saw that the fire had not harmed their bodies, nor was a hair of their heads singed. Their robes were not scorched, and there was no smell of fire on them. Then Nebuchadnezzar said, Praise be to the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who has sent his angel and rescued his servants. They trusted in him and defied the king's command and were willing to give up their lives rather than serve or worship any god except their own god. Therefore I decree that the people of any nation or language who say anything against the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego be cut into pieces and their houses be turned into piles of rubble. For no other god can save in this way. Then the king promoted Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the province province of Babylon. Let us pray. Father, this morning, we thank you for the opportunity to come to worship as your church. I do ask, as has already been prayed, that your spirit would ultimately speak to our hearts and to our minds. 
may in these next few moments what I have prepared be significantly more as it is directed and communicated by your Spirit to our hearts and lives. We thank you for the significant day in the life of our church and pray that all that is done today would be done unto the glory of God with a deep trust that our God is mighty to save. And so by your grace now, may you grant me wisdom and clarity of speech, purity of heart, grace and love for your church. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. One of the key messages of the book of uh, Daniel is that the God of Daniel, hence the God of Israel, the God of Judah, in our text, the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, he will overcome. That in the end, God's people can trust him and even risk being faithful to him in a culture that would oppose such faithfulness because there is a deep conviction throughout this particular book that God is sovereign, that he is the true and living God, and that there's no other king that can stand against him. In the opening chapters of the book of Daniel, we are introduced to a period in time where the people of God had been taken captive by a Babylonian king, uh, unfortunately named Nebuchadnezzar. They are brought to Babylon, and we are told in the opening chapter of this particular book that the king had a specific agenda in mind for those who he's taken into captivity. We are told that he selected and told his advisors to select the most promising youth, the most promising young men from amongst the Israelites. And the way that they were to select would be to recognize who came from nobility and who came from the royal family. And only those men were to be selected for service in Babylon. These men, he added to his uh, advisors who would make the selection, would have to be outstanding in every way. In fact, if you read in the opening chapter, you will find that he says these men had to be without physical defect. Fine specimens. The kind of men that most young ladies are looking for. Uh, in fact, the scripture is this clear. It says that Nebuchadnezzar insisted that they had to be handsome. Don, you would have been selected. Uh, they had to be men with the aptitude to learn across various fields of study. So they had to have bright and keen minds. Only these kinds of men were to be selected for what uh, uh, Nebuchadnezzar had in mind. And Nebuchadnezzar's plan for them involved a three-year discipleship process, if you will. In the three years, they were to be educated in the language and the literature of Babylon. They were given the privilege to sit and eat with the king and shared in his food and his drink from his table. And following the three years of training, of preparing, of equipping, they were appointed to positions of authority within a foreign country that was not their own. You see, the, the agenda of Nebuchadnezzar was not annihilation. It was assimilation. The agenda of the king, Nebuchadnezzar, was to get the counterculture, the other culture, to become uh, incorporated into a dominant culture. 
it is interesting that when you study the historical context, you recognize that in every way, and in particular in our chapter, Nebuchadnezzar is mindful that he is ruling a place in which there are many different cultures gathered. In fact, as I read up a little bit about this, there were some, some key features of assimilation that I think you and I will resonate with. That the process by which a other culture or a minority group would be adopted into a prevailing culture is an interesting one in the following ways. Language plays a huge and significant role in assimilation. It is said that learning the language of a people is one of the best ways to absorb their world view. Missionaries would tell you this. They would say that in order for you to really understand the way that the people work, the way that the people think, that one of the key things that if you're going to be an effective missionary, at least as missionaries were defined in days gone by, that one of the key issues would be to understand the culture from within the language of that prevailing culture. It is interesting that when Nebuchadnezzar selected these promising, good-looking, like you guys right here, Zach and Zach, young men for training, that one of the first key agendas he had was to teach them the literature and the language of Babylon. Not only are they taught the language, but they are given Babylonian names. It is interesting that in the Hebrew, Daniel, Meshach, Shadrach, and Abednego, their Hebrew names all had the hint of divinity and being sons of God. But in the transition of names, it is interesting that they are given a Babylonian name so that when they reference one another, when they speak to each other, they would be reminded of the transition that has been made from where they were to where they now are. These new names would have also encouraged these young men to think of themselves in a different way, as a part of a different culture, rather than from the culture from which they came. But assimilation does not only happen through language and changing of a person's name, but assimilation also is about honoring the prevailing worldview. The Babylonians, for example, were polytheistic people, and worshipped many gods. These men were expected to honor many gods. This is interesting and very important, and will hopefully set the very brief points that I have in just a moment. Did you know that in Babylon you could worship the God of the Israelites, you could worship the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, as long as you also worshipped every other god that was prevailing in that dominant culture. It is interesting to me, that in this assimilation of these men, they were invited into not only speaking the language and a change of name, but invited to look at their world through the lens of Babylon and Persia. You see, you could worship God, you could have a faith in Him, but you also must accept that there are many other gods to whom you too must give your honor and your worship. Babylon was a great city. It had wealth and it had power. But the cost of living in Babylon was assimilation into a culture and adoption of its language and a worldview that ultimately would come crashing in on those who believed and served and worshipped the God of Israel. A worldview of Babylon was 
one of power and force and violence in which the king ruled by the threat of death and in which you would be taken care of as long as you serve both king and dominant worldview. And our text this morning reveals what happens when men of God stay true to the God who saved them. It shows us, perhaps in a simple way, what it really means to trust God in a culture of many worldviews and in a culture where the threat is not annihilation or eradication of Christians, but where the threat is that we would be wooed and seduced into the prevailing culture, not standing out, not being significant, not being known for anything, but being rather pluralistic and accepting of the prevailing norm and the prevailing perspectives. I think that it is a relevant scripture for you and me. And certainly, as I selected the scripture, one of my first thoughts were, as I take off very dirty glasses, is that my memories of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego go back to Flanograph and Sunday school. Don't we love that story? I mean, it's one of the key stories of Sunday school, early childhood, you know, Sunday school, is to tell them about the men of God who were thrown into the furnace, but they came out on the other side because God had rescued them. But there is so much more to this story, I think, and so much relevance for you and me that live in this wonderful city called Calgary, in this great country called Canada. I ought to be very careful now how I speak, but I want to speak truthfully. As I believe part of the Christian perspective ought to be to call out in a culture like ours that which needs to stand against that which is not right. I think part of the Christian perspective of life ought to be that we ought to be discerning of where we start to compromise and where we start to embrace and go along with a cultural perspective that is against the affirmation of the one true and living God. It is a perspective that is not popular. For there is no one here who desires to stand out, to be, to be ridiculed or to be oppressed because of their faith. No one desires this. And yet I think the gift of this particular text is, is to say to you and me that those who put their faith and trust in God, put Him as the primary in their life, they will make decisions that often may be countercultural and may be risk, risky in, 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 in doing so. Moses said that many Israelites would worship the idols of Palestine. He predicted that they would worship them in exile. And here we have, Daniel included, four men who stand up and say, we will be faithful and we will trust the God of our ancestors. So on this monumentous day for us, as we gather in just a few hours to share in faith, that which God is calling us to. I want to share with you, based on this scripture, just three simple thoughts. The first is simply this, that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego were not seduced by the prevailing culture. You see, their culture, their position of authority, their privilege, were all secondary to the worship of the one true God. 
they show us that it is possible to live in a culture, to learn the culture, to know the language. And perhaps those of us who can most resonate with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and Daniel are those who have had to live in other cultures, and those of us who had to learn the other culture, and understand the other culture, and learn the, 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 the cultural norms and values within a dominant culture. But what we do realize as we study this particular text is that it is possible to live in a culture even with authority and privilege and yet remain faithful to the truest form of worship and the true and living God. It is possible for the dominant culture to not replace the significance of our worship of God as Him being the primary in our life. It is possible to have authority. It is possible to have influence. It is possible to be handsome and good-looking and be recognized as a person of aptitude and ability and yet to remain faithful and not allow the culture to become something that takes us away from the primacy of who God is and placing our hope and trust in Him. To which all God's people says, Amen. You know, when, when comfort matters more than our faith in God, I think we are being seduced. When a, agreement with principles and values that in your workplace may be contrary to the will of God become uh, our choice, we are being seduced. When we remain silent on political fronts in which decisions are made that are contrary to what we believe is the will of God and we remain silent, I think we are being seduced. When our faith in God matters less than the personal security and privilege we are experiencing in this wonderful nation, then we are being seduced and giving in to a perspective Perspective that is not what God calls us to have. How do we allow our circumstance, our nationality, our privilege and authority that we have been given as a blessing and a gift of God? Let me, let me just point this out to you. Nebuchadnezzar thought that he was the provider for these men, but God is the ultimate one who placed them in positions of authority and power. He is the sovereign God of apocalyptic literature. Whenever you read it, this is what apocalyptic literature wants to do. Remind you that men can plan, men can think they have authority, but ultimately God's sovereign plan plays itself out even when others think that they are strong and they are powerful. That God placed them in positions of privilege and power so as to fulfill His promise and His plan. Could it be that our positions of privilege and power in this wonderful country, and now we don't think ourselves as powerful, and many of us don't think of ourselves as privileged, and part of the reason is we live this comparison lifestyle. We look at the person down the street. We look at the person in the other neighborhood. We look at the people who play hockey and make millions upon millions of dollars. And we say, we're not the powerful. We're not the wealthy. We're not the influential friends. Listen, we are so privileged. We are so blessed. We have been given so much in this wonderful country. Some of you serve in positions of influence and power in the workplace that pastors will never get to. Some of you have been entrusted with the care of people under you that I will never have an influence upon. Do we recognize that with the privilege and power that has been given to you and me, that we can be seduced into not using that for the glory and the honor of God? And that God calls us in this day and age to remain faithful to who He is. Let me ask you a question. Does your faith in Him matter? 
Does your faith in Him cause others to notice that there is someone whom is greater that you give your allegiance, your time, and your energy to? Does your faith in God actually distinguish you from the, 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 the very predominant culture within which it is so easy to assimilate and become just a part of the mass and the crowd? To stand and to believe and to have faith and trust in Him is not as private matter as we'd like it to be. Are we known for what we believe? More significantly, are we known for whom we place our hope and trust in? They were not seduced by the prevailing culture. And just so you know, my wife does not leave because of poor preaching. She's done this the second week now, and I had a talk with her last week. I said, if you start walking out when I'm preaching, it's the worst time to do it. You know, people are going to go, not even his wife can stand he's preaching. But, no, I'm not going to, because that's personal. She's she's not feeling well. Uh, Let's just leave it at that. They were not seduced by the prevailing culture, and secondly... They trusted God entirely and His will for their lives. Listen, listen to this. This comes out of their mouths. King Nebuchadnezzar, we do not need to defend ourselves before you in this matter. If we are thrown into the blazing furnace, the God we serve is able to deliver us from it. And He will deliver us from your majesty's hand. But even if he does not, we want you to know, your majesty, that we will not serve your gods or worship the image of gold you have set up. Dare I say to us that sometimes trusting God may lead us from favor to the fire. That sometimes putting our hope and trust in him may be that we become willing to sacrifice the privilege and the position we may enjoy to communicate in no uncertain terms in a culture like our own that we are solely in His will and living for His glory. When I read this particular text, it challenges me that I would be so trusting of God that I would believe so deeply that not only is He mighty and able to save, but should He choose not to save in the way that I would want Him to save, that I would still be obedient to Him. What kind of trust is it that places oneself so deeply, so entirely in God's providential hand that we say, there's no backup plan here, there's no fail-safe here, there's no RRSP or pension waiting for me here, but I am all in. And I trust that ultimately God's will for my life is what matters most. I think that there's no one in this room that can adequately confess that this is the level to which we live. And we are not told in this entire narrative of Daniel where this faith is formed. I mean, some commentators hint that the reason they can be as bold as they are is because they were raised to be men of faith. But there's no evidence and no information that tells us what their childhood was like. Yet here we have 
And I think this is Daniel's point. Men who are so committed and so trusting of God that they are literally putting their lives in his hands, saying, God, whatever your will is, whatever your purpose is, whatever you will choose to do or not do, I will obey you. I will be faithful to you. I will place my trust and hope in you. Let let me say it to you in a different way. I do not think there is another way to live this Christian life than to be challenged and to respond with the willingness to say, not my will be done, but your will. Not my will be done, but your will. In fact, Jesus, in what some scholars say, are the most critical and vulnerable moments in human history, where he contemplates the cross, where he bows, and the intensity of the moment is so overwhelming physiologically that he bleeds according to scripture, uh, uh, sweat that turned to blood. It is in that very moment that we see the kind of trust and obedience that was expressed to the person, the human Jesus Christ, when he says, Father, not my will, but thy will be done. There is something liberating and powerful about the life of the person who says, no matter what the outcome, I will choose to put my hope in the God of my ancestors, the God of Abraham, of Isaac, and of Jacob. Folks, there's one thing that will never change. No matter how advanced we become, no matter how much knowledge we have, is that the call to follow God is a call to complete trust and complete surrender. The reason why this particular text is so startling to us is because perhaps we are removed from persecution, perhaps because in our communities and in our day-to-day life we are not confronted with such incredible violence and threat. But yet here, in the Scripture, many, many years ago, and in many a country today, where it pays to believe, such kind of trust is proven true over and over again. To follow God, to be a disciple, is radical business. It is challenging business. It is not about incorporating a set of beliefs into an existing worldview. Neither is it about becoming comfortable and having God bless us in every fathomable way that we so desire. It is about a willingness to trust Him and His will, not only for our lives, but for nations, for people, for all of creation. King, we don't have to defend ourselves like this. We know our God can save us. But even if He does not, we want you to know we will not serve your gods or worship the image of gold you have set up. How do we resist the powers in our world that work against the powers of God? I think that's a significant question. This morning in our prayer time, we referred to the 200-plus girls that have been kidnapped. Uh, You're familiar with this in Africa. Taken out of school. Reports are that they had been taken out of the country and they've been sold as slaves. 
man, I'd hate to reduce what Daniel is trying to say to us to just your and my personal need for trust and our personal problems and challenges that we face. I I think that would be to delegitimize what this text is saying. I, I think that this text is speaking to us as a community of faith in greater ways. It is challenging us to consider that there are many forces, many powers at work within this world meant to bring captivity to people. Isn't it interesting in the text? Over and over it's emphasized that these men were tied and bound and thrown into the furnace. I think it represents the many people that live in bondage in our world today, uh, enslaved maybe by political systems, by crime, by people who wish to harm, possess, oppress. And here is the church given the opportunity to say, we will not be silent. We will not bow down. We will not worship other gods. We will not accept the predominant worldview. We will stand as men and women of faith saying that we have placed our trust in the true and living God. Listen, those of us who are so engaged in social activity, thanks be to you for leading the way. Thanks be to you for helping us as a church to think about what it means to actually live out of faith that matters in our world today. But can I add this to you as I challenge those who may not be active in this area? Without placing our hope solely in the God who has overcome Satan, sin, and death, our work is folly. Our work does not matter. For who is mighty to save is the God whom we serve. And we join Him in the work of salvation, in the work of freedom, in the work of setting free. They trusted God entirely and His will for their lives. And then finally, I think the reason they could trust is because we have a Savior that stepped into that furnace and overcame it. It's interesting that when you read the narrative, you'll find that um, it's so hot. Did, did you pay attention to the details? Do you know why I ask you to stand? Besides the fact that most of you sleep when you're sitting. It's harder to sleep when you stand, by the way, just so you know. But that's not the reason. I ask you to stand because I think when we're attentive, when we stand, we are more attentive. And, and sometimes, I think especially for some of us who have been in the church long enough and certainly heard this story from our early childhood years, that it's easy to dismiss that we know what the story is about. But did you notice the details of this story? Did you notice how that Nebuchadnezzar, you know, for example, one, one detail that I found fascinating, and I will finish very quickly, but one detail, did you see how they described that they were dressed, they had pants on? That was important for us to know. They had pants on, they had shirts on, they had turbans on their heads. Isn't that interesting? And then when the, when the, when the story moves further, it tells us that when they came out, not a hair on their head was singed. Now, I know what you're thinking, Stu, if you were in there, that would be all right with you, right? It wouldn't be that big a miracle, right? I mean, but, but they had hair, presumably. Not a hair was singed, and not only this, it says that their clothes did not even smell like smoke, Right? And, and, and I think in the telling of the story, we get the sense that, that God's deliverance, God's salvation is incredible given what they are being put through. He is, he's mighty in profound ways. But the one detail that captures my mind is when Nebuchadnezzar looks and he sees from his pluralistic mind, he says this, I see someone who looks like a son of the gods. He, he does not know who it is, but he thinks it's divine. The fourth figure in the fire. Now I read and I tried to research this and I tried to find... 
any credible scholar that could tell me that is the pre-incarnate Christ there in the, in the fire. And no one would sign off on it. No one would say, no, it is for sure. Some said that maybe it's the great angel that we find earlier in the Old Testament. All that aside, I will say this, that it is the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob who delivers them in the furnace. And dare I say this to you, they could live boldly because they knew this God would even come to their rescue in those places and at those times. Let me say it to you in a different way. We can be bold and we can trust God. We can do things that may even make some other people uncomfortable because we know in the end that even in the furnace, God is there. I want to correct a quote, a, a great theologian, Bono from U2. Please don't chew me out for that, okay? I... It was many years ago that at a presidential prayer breakfast, Bono was asked to give an address. And I paraphrase because I haven't memorized this quote. Maybe I should. But I'm not a disciple of Bono. He spoke of the need for the Western world, the first world, to relieve the debt of the third world in order for the third world to actually have a fighting chance to rebuild its economies, to rebuild its nations. And at the end of his address, he said this. He says, I do not find that the God of the Scripture, the God of the Bible, makes his habitation in palaces or in places made of gold or silver, but rather... He's the God whom we find in the cardboard boxes where homeless men and women make their homes. He is found in the cry of those who cannot defend themselves. He is present with those that no one else can rescue and that we are most in His presence when we are most with people like that. I think that God is calling our community of faith to a trust these days. I don't even know if the word sacrificial really carries enough weight. I don't know if we believe deeply enough in the kingdom of God that we would forsake some of the privileges and comforts we enjoy to do all we can do, not for the sake of a denomination or building, but for the sake of the kingdom of God. We are invited into so much more. We are invited into being a part of the work of God in ways that will take us to places we never thought we would be. I think it would be great if the outcome of trusting God and being obedient always meant that I could be in a fire and not smell of smoke. We know that it would be wrong to interpret this particular passage and say that we can go to the furnace and that God would miraculously deliver us from the furnace. 
But we have a greater hope, a hope that transcends this world and this life, a hope that says to you and me, God has overcome even the worst that sin can do. And that resurrection is a hope and a promise of the church. You see, the reason we can trust God and place our lives fully in his will is because Jesus Christ has made that possible. And it is to such a faith that we are called. As Candy comes and starts to lead us and in just a moment, I would say to you as the community and myself here this morning, that as I shared last week, we are in a time and in a season in which God is inviting us to participate in his work. He is challenging you and me to not look around at what others are doing and what others are expecting, but to personally respond to his invitation. I also believe that that cannot happen apart from putting our trust firmly in him. Let me, let me say this to you in your personal life. I don't know what you're facing, but God is greater. And he can be trusted. Whatever obstacles we may perceive we have in this church, and they may be real, our God is mighty to save. My friends, you can trust him because he will not let you down. We can trust Him because He is faithful and mighty to save. Think about the goodness of God to, your, to you and your family. Think about the ways in which He has been faithful today. A God that comes to rescue even in the furnace. A God that comes to where we are. And a God that has overcome Satan, sin, and death. In Him, I place my trust today. In him I place my hope today. Would you join me? Would you join me? Let us pray. Father, thank you so much for childlike faith. Thank you so much that we can attempt greater things than any one of us here dare to believe in our own strength is possible because of who you are. Lord, we need to be like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. We need to be like Daniel. Would you raise up Daniels? And, and, and would you raise up men and women of faith? Would you raise up Esthers amongst us? Would you raise up families who, who teach that this God is able? We, we, we desire as a community of faith to be, to be more than what is, is acceptable. We we desire to be radically obedient for the sake of this world and for the glory of your name. May your spirit continue to minister now and in the days to come. Grant us your grace tonight that we will firmly lay hold of the promise from your scripture that you are able to do immeasurably more than we could think or ask. In Jesus' mighty name. Amen.